Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. From werewolves and monsters to the modern-day slasher, horror fiction has captivated people since ancient Greece. But so many of the genre's most famous and terrifying stories were created, written, or developed by women whose names you might not have ever learned. Until now. I'm Courtney Enlow, and this is a special, spooky edition of Sci-Fi Wire Fangirl's Forgotten Women of Genre, titled Forgotten Women of Horror. Every day for the week of Halloween, we'll tell you the stories of just some of the women who helped make the horror sphere what it is today. It's considered one of the greatest movies ever made, preserved by the National Film Registry as being culturally and historically significant, and inarguably one of the films that shaped even created the horror film genre as we know it. James Whale's Frankenstein is a classic, and it owes everything to a woman. Actually, too. We all know and adore Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, author of Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. But that wasn't the direct adaptation Wales sought out to make. Wales' film was an adaptation of the play Frankenstein, An Adventure in the Macabre by Peggy Webling. In addition to being the first woman to adapt Frankenstein for the stage, Webling's was the first adaptation that named Frankenstein the creature after his creator. So sit back, listen up, and next time you're faced with one of those super helpful, actually, Frankenstein is the doctor, the creature is Frankenstein's monster, you'll be armed with all of the knowledge to actually them right back. All thanks to Peggy Webling. Usually when we categorize our forgotten women of genre, at the very least, some information is available. But in the case of Peggy Webling, history has abandoned her entirely, save for this one key fact, her involvement in Frankenstein, which has naturally been diluted by time and male counterparts. But more on that later. Apart from brief inclusions in books like Hideous Progenies by Stephen Earl Forey, as well as the annotated Frankenstein, much of the information I've found is thanks to Dorian Giesler Greenbaum, a historian, professor, and the great-grandniece of Peggy Webling, and Dr. Bruce Graver, a professor at Providence College, both of whom collaborated on a lecture for the 200th anniversary of Mary Shelley's publication. Here's what we know. Margaret Webling was born in 1871 in Westminster, England. According to Greenbaum, who keeps a collection of her great aunt's letters and manuscripts, Webling's family was intellectual, but they struggled financially. She was one of six girls, and their school education was spotty, but their home life provided a great deal of reading, art, and cultural enrichment. When she was just eight years old, Peggy and her sisters, Josephine and Rosalind, started working as dramatic reciters to bring in some extra cash. 
It was that youthful career that developed into a love of theater and starting her work as an actress, author, and playwright. From 1906 to 1921, Webling published 10 novels, as well as short stories and producing her first play. It was in 1921 that she first began work on her version of Frankenstein. Webling told the Daily News and Westminster Gazette, I was walking down a street turning over in my mind the possible subject for a good play. And a good idea came to me in a flash. Suddenly, I thought of Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley's book, Frankenstein. I had read it years before, when I was a very young girl, and was then completely absorbed in it. But since then, I don't suppose I ever gave it a moment's thought. So I at once dismissed the idea as absurd and impossible to produce as a play. But I had not walked many more steps before the idea came to me again. And so I really considered whether it could be done. Before I realized it, I had arrived at my doorstep, and the plot and various details were all worked out in my mind. For years, she tried to capture the attention of theater producers, ultimately sending her manuscript to actor-writer Hamilton Dean, who had produced his own adaptation of Dracula to much success. Most versions of this story have Dean asking Webling to write the play, rather than doing so of her own volition. This is not the case, according to Greenbaum. Webling and Dean worked together to make revisions. They toured in repertory for two years, and the play premiered in London on February 10, 1930, having 72 performances. According to Graver, Webling's play and her understanding of the source material held some feminist stances. Webling was involved in the Women Writers' Suffrage League, and she grew up in a family for whom feminism and the intellectual growth and stimulation of women was important. And because of that, quote, she has a very different point of view from the men who adapted the novel both before and after her. Her play anticipates many of the feminist readings of the novel that we are familiar with. Her play is also the bridge, a bridge almost no one has seen between the novel we read and the very different universal film that we have all seen. When this dead hand moves, the monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. <laughs> to shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. Elizabeth! To prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about, the spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. Don't touch that! The film and the play are quite different themselves. But thanks to Webling's portrayal, the creature remains, as Stephen Earl Forey describes in Hideous Progenies, loutish brute imbued with a child's longing for pleasure and acceptance. Webling had little interest in depicting the science behind the creature or his creation and she didn't see the need for horrific violence. That stuff all happens off stage. All of the creature's killings are acts of ignorance, of not understanding his strength, of wanting a kind touch. Webling's adaptation portrayed Frankenstein the man and Frankenstein the monster as doppelgangers of sorts, with Henry, Webling's iteration of the doctor, seeing his creature as an extension of himself and hideously abusing him, damaging him, and creating the very monster he becomes, not due to lightning and science, but from sheer cruelty. 
In early versions of the script, they were to be played by the same actor. This wasn't to be any monstrous giant, but a man in Henry's exact image. Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley saw the darkness in men when she first wrote Frankenstein. It is fitting, then, that the first woman to adapt the novel for stage would see other layers and levels of darkness in ways only women of their times could. Playwright John Balderston secured the American rights to Webling's play, reworking it with Webling for a more commercial venture. Like all men who see something created by a woman, take it for themselves, make some changes and claim the credit, Balderston openly called Webling's play, quote, illiterate and inconceivably crude. Apart from her American collaborator, reviews were mixed for Webling's play. The Times of London wrote, Miss Webling, translating into terms of the theater Mary Shelley's one lasting and original composition, has unquestionably succeeded in bringing the monster to life. But the play in which she exhibits this wild beast is as flimsy as a birdcage. In an effort to learn about Webling's play, I read portions of John T. Soyster's book of Gods and Monsters, a critical guide to Universal Studios' science fiction, horror, and mystery films, 1929 to 1939. And he referred to the play as awkward of prose and not terribly good. But he also refers to the original book as, quote, a real snoozer, so your mileage may vary. This is unsurprising. Even Shelley herself faced dismissal from largely male critical circles. Famously, the British critic wrote, The writer of it is, we understand, a female. This is an aggravation of that which is the prevailing fault of the novel, but if our authoress can forget the gentleness of her sex, it is no reason why we should, and we shall therefore dismiss the novel without further comment. (sighs) According to Greenbaum, much of the play's content and themes have been attributed to Balderston, not Webling but in every case can be found in the earliest versions of Webling's play and in some of the London reviews. These include the doppelganger theme, Frankenstein's childlike sensibility and his soul, his want of a mate, the cruelty of his creator, even the setting. But it was Balderston's adaptation that Universal purchased. He and Webling were paid $20,000 plus 1% of Frankenstein's profits. The historic implication, as far as I can see, as created by men, is that a woman wrote a bad play, a man came in and fixed it, and then it made it to Hollywood where it was made again even better by a man. Sigh. Peggy Webling died June 27, 1949, in London. To this day, most don't even know her name. But we all know his name. Both their names. Frankenstein. Forgotten Women of Horror is a production of Sci-Fi Wire Fangirls. Today's episode was written and narrated by Courtney Enlow and produced by Cher Martinetti. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sci-Fi Fangirls Pod and at Sci-Fi Fangirls. You can find this and so much more at Sci-Fi Fangirls.com. Be sure to subscribe to Forgotten Women of Genre wherever you get your podcasts.